friends, welcome. I'm Andrew Hicks, and you're listening to the Text and Context Podcast. Hello. 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 Hey. Hi, Dr. Bolsinger. Hello. Feel free to call me Todd. It's okay. Oh, okay. <clears throat> it feels weird, but I'll, I'll go for it. Okay. Hi, yeah, Todd. Well, How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm, I'm good, Andrew. How are you? Doing great. Are you calling us from uh, Fuller today? Uh, I'm down in Pasadena. Yes, that's where I am. Awesome. 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 So tell, tell me about what you do at Fuller. Uh, maybe for those who might not know. I am the uh, executive director for the Church Leadership Institute, a senior fellow for the Dupree Center for Leadership, and an associate professor of leadership formation. Okay, so all stuff to do with leadership, obviously. <laughs> yeah, every, every bit of it. Every day I wake up and I just work with leaders every day. Mm-hmm. A leader of leaders. Mm-hmm. Something yeah. like that. <laughs> That's certainly the topic of your two books that I want to talk about mm-hmm. in a minute, Canoeing the Mountains and Tempered Resilience, both mm-hmm. really great books. But I wanted to ask, so you're a leader of leaders. You've written these two really great books on leadership. What has kind of brought you down this path to where you are now? So tell me about some of your background and what's brought you to that. Yeah. So for 27 years, I was a pastor in the Presbyterian Church. Uh, 10 years, I was at Hollywood Presbyterian. They took me on their staff when I was 23 years old and they wow. sent me to seminary and um, yeah, and they paid for it. I tell everybody that all the time, wherever I go, I think there's this church that invested in me when I was a little more than just enthusiasm and arrogance. And yes. uh, they made sure that I got my master's of divinity without any debt. So I was mm. able to go on and get a PhD. Um, and, um, and then when I... I was finishing up that PhD. I was also on their staff. I became an associate pastor. And then I became the senior pastor at San Clemente Presbyterian, where I served for 17 years. And during the time that I was there, I took the church through some transformation. And I had to go through some transformation myself to be able to Mm. keep leading the church forward. And that just kept strengthening my commitment to leadership and leadership development. And um, eight years ago, I was asked to come back to Fuller, my alma mater, to be with the then new president, Mark Laberton, to help bring some organizational change to theological education and worked as part of the senior administration there for six and a half years. And then when we finally got our strategic plan called Fuller Next passed, I um, asked if I could step out of senior leadership and just work every day, helping faith leaders thrive as change leaders. And, and that's really what I do. I've got uh, my own consulting company, and I teach at the school and have lead a project at the school. I'm a little bit like a doctor who has my own medical practice and that I teach and do research at the med school. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that's a good comparison. Okay. So I have, so you're Presbyterian. So, so you worked at two different Presbyterian churches. But a friend of mine, I told him that I was going to interview you. And he was listening to a bunch of podcast interviews that you've already been on. And mm-hmm. He said that you have some charismatic influence. So charismatic and Presbyterian. Is that true? <laughs> well, I joke that I'm a Presby Jesuit who hung out at the vineyard. It's really my background. Yeah. So, awesome. um, yeah, I was raised Roman Catholic and I've been very influenced by Ignatian spirituality and I've had a uh, Ignatian spiritual director 
stuff. So I, I, I resonate with kind of Jesuit and, and reformed thinking. But um, I was very influenced by the Anaheim Vineyard when I was at um, Hollywood Presbyterian. A group of us used to go down whenever we could on Sundays and go to the vineyard. And um, John Wimber was at, at the kind of the beginning of that movement. And so, yeah, I've had yeah. a little bit of that background in my life as well. Very cool. That's a really interesting mix of influences right there. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. unique. It is. It, it, imagine what it's like being in my head. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, a lot going on, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, I also yeah. noticed, so in both your books, you quote a lot from Edwin Friedman. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is he just someone you read a lot or did you study under Friedman or like what's, what's your connection to Friedman? Well, so Edwin, Edwin Friedman, um, his work was very influential in the 80s and 90s in more mainline denominations. He was a Jewish rabbi who was also a marriage and family therapist who used Bowenian family systems theory to apply to religious congregations. And so he did a lot of work with churches and he wrote books that were pretty popular in uh, more mainline seminaries. And I found his work through, because my wife is a therapist and because I've done a bunch of work on sy systems approach to leadership that I found his work early on. And what's interesting is I've been, my work is mostly built on Ed Friedman's work and Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky's work in adaptive leadership. And it just happens to be that Heifetz and Friedman are both Jewish. And so I think mm -hmm. there's a deep, deep connection between these ways of thinking about leadership and religious communities and religious and faith communities that actually makes it work well. So uh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to that uh, kind of deeper communal and spiritual approach to leadership myself. So absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I asked about Friedman specifically because I love his A Failure of Nerve. That was a yeah. really formative book for me that, that, uh, that sits on my shelf and it's next to your book on my shelf actually so yeah well you then you can see how how often how how often that i uh, i reference that book particularly yeah in tempered yeah. resilience i actually referenced it a lot i talk about failure of nerve and then yes. a failure of heart so yeah yes yes and that you play on that a lot yeah so okay let's go to your books then so you first wrote well you've written a lot of stuff but i'm thinking about canoeing the mountains and then tempered resilience because there's a mm -hmm. relationship between these two books can you talk about that yeah so canoeing the mountains was really my approach was my attempt to, to capture um when you can no longer lead out of best practices i mean the most leadership relate uh, literature and most especially within christian circles is really around best practices be a person of good character who learns from the people who come before you the best practices and then then implement them and execute them well and that's good and that's really good when when you're called when i say when you're on the map when you're in a terrain where there are lots of wisdom but when you get into uncharted territory which and so canoeing the mountains uses the metaphor of lewis and clark and the core of discovery when they discovered that the American West did not have a water route that was going to connect mm. all the way to the Pacific Ocean, which is what they were looking for, and instead ran into the Rocky Mountains, a group of canoers had to figure out how to get over mountains. Mm. And the only way you can get over mountains is learning how to drop the canoes and then navigate by learning every step of the way, because there's no map for this. And that language is really what got me thinking about the kind of leadership needed in a deeply disruptive world. Um, in a world where, where literally people were saying to me when I was coaching and consulting, hey, seminary didn't prepare me for this. I don't know what mm. to do. 
And mm. so in that world, you need a different kind of leadership, which uh, Heifetz and Linsky call adaptive leadership. And so I built on that for Canoeing the Mountains. And then when I started teaching on Canoeing the Mountains, and that book came out in 2015. And so I spent the better part of five years before the pandemic traveling around talking about it. What I found is everybody wanted to talk about the chapter in the book on sabotage, mm. which was a chapter that comes from Ed Friedman's work that the experience that is very common for leaders, that is the most soul sucking, isn't the challenge of the world out there as much as it is changing. It's the resistance of our own people when you call mm. them to face the challenge of the world out there. Mm. And so the internal resistance of our own people is the most soul sucking thing for most leaders. And that's really experienced like as sabotage. And so tempered resilience really became how are we formed to face resistance with a kind of tempered resilience, a strength and flexibility, a wisdom and courage that'll allow us to go through change. Mm. Wonderful. So yeah, so I'm curious, um, it's in uncharted territory. And you said, you know, people are saying seminary didn't prepare me for this. What are some of those uncharted territories like specifically on our map in the, in the context we're serving today that you have in mind as you wrote that book? Well, well, when I wrote the book, the, sing the single biggest shift was what I would call the shift from Christendom to post-Christendom. And, um, and what Christendom means isn't that everybody's a Christian. It just means that the culture gives Christianity a home court advantage. So if you think about this, I've traveled around the country, actually around the world now, but really around the country a lot. And you can go into almost any small town in America and there's like a town square with the most famous dead guy in the a statue in the middle of the square. There's a courthouse, a library and the first church that got there first, right? First Lutheran, first Baptist, first Methodist. And all the other churches are all on Second Street because everybody knew that society should be built around law, education and religion. And that a religion was assumed to be Christian religion, even if people weren't Christians. So I have a copy in my office here of a Los Angeles Times article from 1963 that had a, an article on the then 9,000 member Hollywood Presbyterian Church. That, that's the church I served at in the 80s when it had about 4,000 members. And today it's about 400. Um, mm. But the most powerful part about that article was that in 1963, there was an article on the, on the church, but next to the article, there was a box that had a week's worth of daily Bible readings. Mm. And I said, if you can remember a day when the Los Angeles Times would help you with your morning quiet time, then you can remember Christendom. <laughs> it's when the, the, right? the culture supported Christianity. Not everybody was a Christian. Wow. Billy, Graham, Billy Graham crusades were at an all-time high in 1963 because people needed Jesus even then, but it was a different world. And most of us were shaped and trained to be leaders in that Christendom world. And now we're in this world where Christianity is marginalized and where Christianity is one of many different voices and many different belief systems in a pluralistic society. And people are trying to figure out what to do about that. And it has been exacerbated during the pandemic. Um, as, you know, you know the statistics as well as I do, less than half of all Americans are members of any religious organization of any kind, any religious community. And that's even higher amongst younger uh, people. So younger people are even higher. Yeah. So, so it's that kind of world that we're in today that requires us to say, okay, I wasn't prepared. I was prepared for a world where mission field meant we send money over seawater, 
not mm. the mission field is right outside the side on the sidewalk or maybe sometimes even sitting in the pew. Mm -hmm. So I can't remember if you actually use this word in your books, but like you're describing the missional church movement. Like, would you see what you're doing as part of that missional church movement as well? Um, I, I was deeply influenced and have been deeply influenced as part of the missional church movement. And yes, in one sense, I have. I, I would say that my contribution to the missional church movement is less theological. It mm. is more about the formation of leaders to lead churches through the resistance that keeps them from being missional. So mm. at the moment, almost everybody agrees that we should be missional. The hard part is we just don't know how to actually get our congregations to be missional. <laughs> and mm. that's the challenge. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, going from the the classes on being a missionary to actually being a missionary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But, I mean, I mean, it's a it's a huge shift of all of our structures and organizations to think of this church is really a witnessing community in the middle of a culture that needs to experience the gospel in flesh and blood, as opposed to this is a place where Christians can gather to get Christian education and formation and worship. Um, and it's one of many in a community. I mean, it's a, it's a different way of thinking about the church. For sure. So I'm curious, why do you think we still are holding on to the Christendom world? Because I mean, of course, I can, I can see where we would want to be in that world where we have a home court advantage. I mean, who doesn't want a home court advantage? But it also seems like you've described abundantly clear that we're not in that space anymore. And yet here we are teaching to lead in that environment. And a lot of people still assuming we are in that environment. Why do you think mm -hmm. that is? Well, two, okay. So two ways to think about this. One is um, the root word for familiar is the same root word as the word family. So I always hmm. say to people, whenever people get into an unfamiliar place, or you introduce them to an unfamiliar set of practices or an unfamiliar context, they don't just feel disoriented, they feel unfamilied. They feel mm. abandoned, right? There's this deep emotional resistance. Like, it's like, we are like kids who go off to Disney World expecting to have the best day of our life. And if you lose mom and dad in Main Street, you are not gonna enjoy anything till you run home back to mama. Mm. Then you can venture forth. And right now, we are in a place where the church is feeling a lot of disorientation. So there's this great desire to get back to what familiars and you'll hear this all the time. We need to, we need to get our country back. We need to go back mm. to the days. Right. And, yeah. and the you know, and those old, right. And those old days were great. If you look like me, I'm a 58 year old white guy who got a full scholarship from a big church <laughs> at 33 years old. Right. Right. But in, yeah, in, yeah. Yeah. In 1963, when Hollywood, Presbyterian had 9,000 members, there was also 250,000 people marching on Washington in the, at the front of the Lincoln Memorial to get civil rights, right? So, yeah. so we yeah. look at these different seasons in life and we have a tendency to look back on anything that feels familiar with us. Um, the, the second reason, quite frankly, is denial. So when, when I tell the story about Lewis and Clark, one of the things I tell them is, you know, they walked, he walked up the side, Meriwether Lewis walked up the side of Lenhigh Pass, looked over this pass, expecting to find a river on the other side that he had just come out of. After 18 months of paddling upstream, he's now expecting to take his canoes about a half a day, put them in another stream and get to go downstream. Mm. And what he finds instead is the Rocky Mountains. Now, the interesting part is he asked the Mandan tribe, he'd spent the winter with the Mandan tribe, and he said, is there a river over there? And they said, yeah, 
but you're gonna have to go over some mountains. And they said, mountains, mountains, we're from Virginia. We're great at mountains. Well, what they thought was Appalachian mountains, mm. Not, mm. not Rocky mountains. They had no mental model for just how different the world in front of them would be. And because they didn't, they were in denial about it. Um, they, if you've, I joke, if you've ever been to Western Kansas, you can see the Rocky Mountains in Colorado because they loom so large. But Meriwether Lewis saw them for three months before he started walking through them. And he wrote in his journal, I refuse to believe this will be anything but a safe and comfortable passage. So we live in denial. We want things to be comfortable. We want to go back. We want to use the things that are familiar with us. We, we didn't sign up for this. We're canoers. What are you telling me that there's mountains in front of me? This isn't what I wanted to do. And so it's, it's a really disruptive moment to be off the map in uncharted territory. Certainly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, so I'm uh, from Church of Christ background, the restorationist background. So the, the restorationist idea runs deep in our circles, um, kind of in a different way. But I think it undergirds a lot of what we do in general. Um, yeah. And, and I, I know firsthand more than anyone that, that the restoration ideal can be very dangerous. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's understandable, but it can it be really dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely. So I had to read Canoeing the Mountains for my seminary class. So mm. I guess I am being prepared. Is that is that a good thing? Are you glad to hear that, I guess? Yeah, I'm glad to. That's why I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully I won't be... Um, I won't be one of those that, that has graduated. So I'm not quite done with my MDiv, but hopefully I'm not one of those that finishes and continues in ministry and then says, I wasn't prepared for this. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's the goal. I mean, I, I, and I think the thing I say to most people is the goal isn't to be perfectly prepared. The goal is to be prepared to continually adapt. Mm. Like that's the yeah, skill so that leads me. Yeah, and that leads yeah. me to my question. So can I ever really be prepared for the world that we're walking into or do i just need to learn how to learn in that regard well what you just said is just learn how to learn and what you realize is that's actually the giant disruption right so mm. um i always tell people you know you know you're facing an adaptive challenge when the first thing you have to ask when people say okay pastor what are we going to do is if you have any integrity at all you have to say i don't know which is very hard. Most of us think that uh, we assume that our spiritual leaders do know and that you're supposed to know. And if you don't know, what are we supposed to do? And we don't remember that they had, uh, you know, that, that the Hebrews had to go through the wilderness following the pillar of clouds and the pillar of fire one step at a time. Mm -hmm. So there's a process of learning as you go. There's also loss. We're going to have to let go of things that got us here. Like, you know, if you came on this trip because it's a canoe trip and we tell you there's mountains, you're going to have to not only drop those canoes, you might have to burn them for firewood. And the worst part about it is your identity changes. You're no longer an expert canoeer or water navigator. You're not just a dude who carries luggage and you're walking and it's a different identity. And so that ability to learn, face loss and some other things along the way are really what, has to, what we have to learn. I mean, that's, that's basically, it's a way of how do you continue to take a people forward faithfully in the mission of God when you don't have a clear map? 
you just have a horizon and a picture and a vision and you have a desire uh, to humbly follow the spirit. Mm. Mm. And, and you'd already mentioned that in canoeing the mountains, the part that people focused on the most was the sabotage. And that's interesting. So I was going to ask you about the sabotage stuff, because that's part four is all about mm-hmm. relationships and resistance. So let's, yeah. let's go to that. So why is that just so baked into relationship? Yeah. So one of the principles is you can't go alone, but you haven't sort you haven't, um, you haven't succeeded until you've survived the sabotage. So you can't go alone, but you haven't succeeded until you survive the sabotage. And the reality about that is because as Ed Friedman points out in his work, it's normal and natural for people to want the old status quo. There's a persistence about the past. Um, that I always say to people, sabotage is not the evil things that bad people do. Sabotage is the anxious things that humans do. Mm. It's the, or to put it even better, it's the human things that anxious people do. It's the human things that anxious people do. It's very human. It's normal. It's natural. It's to be expected. Um, uh, Friedman said it's part and parcel of the leadership process. And he said it's actually the most important aspect of leadership is preparing for sabotage. And that most of us never talk about it or think about it. And yet it's all over the scriptures, all over our experiences and you know, I've, I've, I've spoken to uh, 200 groups in the last three years alone, either on Zoom or on now beginning to gather again. And what I realize is every single time I can ask the question, tell me about a time when you experienced sabotage and everybody has one. Mm. So let's define our terms. What do you mean by sabotage? So like what would be an example from some of your experiences and talking to pastors? Yeah, so sabotage is when the anxiety of the group wants it to remain, to return to the old status quo instead of continue on the transformation necessary to move the mission forward. So uh, the best example of this that whenever I get asked to speak on this is I tell the story of the story of the Exodus. It's the greatest sto- you know, miracle in the Bible until the resurrection. It's this great miracle. It comes, I mean, literally, they are rescued through the Red Sea. You know, the 650,000 enslaved Hebrews go through the Red Sea. God rescues them from the chariots. They watch the chariots get destroyed in the Red Sea. They come in the sea after them and get destroyed. So the greatest, most powerful army is destroyed by God behind them. They are freed, and they, Exodus 14, 31 ends, and the people believe in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Hallelujah, amen, strike up the band. Exodus 15, <laughs> is, two, Exodus 15 is two praise songs. You can go look at it, it's just two songs. Yeah. And then they go to lunch. And by Exodus 16, three, they are grumbling against Moses. <laughs> mm. And the Bible says it's been six weeks. Six mm. weeks since seeing the greatest miracle any humans would see until the resurrection. And six weeks later, they're saying, you know, slavery, they killed our children, but we did have leeks and onions for lunch. Maybe we should go back. (laughs) Mm. And that's the experience of sabotage. 
it's the pastor who has said, hey, we want you to come to our church because we want you to help us reach the next generation. We're losing young people. And as soon as you say, I'd like, here's some changes we need to make. And they go, wait a minute, we hired you. The only change we wanted to make is have a young face leading our old liturgy. Like we didn't mm-hmm. expect any other changes, right? We, we hired you for this reason. You gotta be the one who serves, does that. You're the technical fix for our adaptive challenge. And they're burned. They said, I thought you wanted to reach young people. Well, no, we want you to reach young people. We don't want to change. Mm. So that challenge over and over and over again is the experience of sabotage. Mm. I think of like people in abusive relationships, as you said that, like mm. they, they tend to, if they get out of them, they tend to go back to them um, because yeah. they're yeah. comfortable and familiar. Mm. Mm. that's interesting so the best thing we can do for leadership is prepare for sabotage so how do we prepare for sabotage well so what i did with in the book temporary resilience i really took that question up because i said the first whisper that changed my life was someone saying to me and i heard it over and over again seminary didn't prepare me for this so I realized we have to learn to lead differently in a rapidly changing, uncharted territory world. The second whisper was people saying to me, look, I think I can learn this, but I'm not sure I can survive this. Um, I had a district superintendent of the Methodist church say to me, you know, I don't know if I have anybody in my, I don't think we have anybody who can actually do this. I don't think they have the stomach for this. This is really mm. hard. It's really painful. And what we began to realize is what you needed to do is help people be formed for resilience. It's not just something you find deep within you. It's a formation. Um, in the military, they say, you know, at the moment of crisis, you don't rise to the occasion, you default to your training. Mm. And your training needs to be about developing resilience. And that's a formation process. And so in the book, I take people through a process that's like a blacksmithing illustration of how steel turns into a tempered tool that can be used uh, to form stones of hope out of a mountain of despair as dr king said in his famous speech mm-hmm. so the tempered resilience so I, I love that both of these um i mean you can tell that yours is about the practicality both of them have a metaphor as a title that just pushes you into action canoeing mountains and tempered resilience Mm-hmm. So we're going to we're going to canoe over mountains and get beat with hammers. Well, what we're going to do is the, the, it's bo- in both cases. Like the question is, can you canoe over mountains? No, you have to no. le- do something else. Right. Um, mm-hmm. How do you develop tempered resilience? It has to be formed, forged in you. You don't just wake up with it. Uh, you don't just get to. You ha- it actually is a formation process. The way steel has to be shaped through heating and holding and hammering and quenching through a process that forges tempered resilience in you. Um, both of them are processes, are formation processes we have to go through. Mm, absolutely, formation processes. So let's talk about that formation process in tempered resilience, because you have it outlined. Mm-hmm. That's like the whole outline of the book is the process. And you actually, so start here, you actually went to a blacksmithing class in order yeah, to I did. understand this better. So you did that specifically for the purpose of like helping you understand this metaphor, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, 
I was in Washington, D.C., and I was at the uh, MLK Mon um, Memorial, right, the monument there. And they had that line, mm -hmm. hew stones of hope from a mountain of despair. And so I went back and looked at the the speech from the um, from August 1963 when they had the march and the 250,000 people met there. And he used the phrase, with this faith, he had just referred to the to Isaiah 40, with this faith, we will be able to hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. With this faith, we'll be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. And, you know, you preach, that's just a masterclass, right? That's parallelism, hew, transform, mm -hmm. bring those two things together. So what do you do when you're facing a mountain of despair? You don't blow it up with dynamite. You don't bash it with a sledgehammer. You don't back down. You hew it. You transform it. Well, what are the kind of tools that hew sto stones of hope out of granite mountains of despair? Tempered tools, chisels. So I thought about that and decided I'd go see how blacksmiths make tempered tools. So I signed up for a blacksmithing class and I ended up doing two of them um, so that I That's could awesome. just understand that process. And so what I basically did is I built the whole book around that process, the process of steel being turned into a tempered tool. And it's, a, and, it's a, and it's a process. Um, I built a barn hook. I made a barn hook and I made a bottle opener. Yeah. Oh. Simple, simple, simple things. I'm not, simple. I mean, people who are real blacksmiths know real stuff, not me. I'm, I'm just, for me, it was all about learning so that I could understand it. Yeah. Do you still use them? Oh yeah, actually just had a group of my students over on Thursday night and many of them use the bottle opener. So sweet. That's super cool. That would be cool. Being able to use the thing you made. So mm -hmm. you, you took what you learned in the blacksmithing classes, super cool. And then you have, um, you have a chapter on the crisis of leading change, but then, then you have the, the, the actual process of the blacksmithing mm -hmm. and forming us. So the first one here is resilience, the raw material of a tempered leader. What are we talking about mm -hmm. with that? Well, so the goal for being a, for, to be a leader who can, is you've got to develop resilience. And what most of us, when we hear the talking about, there's lots of books on resilience, lots of stuff. When people talk about resilience, they mostly think it's like resilience is like your grit, like be tough. Like, like I always say, it's somebody coming to you and saying, come on, suck it up, buttercup, you can do better. And what you realize is actually resilience is is the combination of characteristics that are formed in it's a combination of things like humility or teachability of emotional intelligence attunement creativity and adaptability and tenacity like the most resilient leaders are people who can learn they can connect to other people so that they'll go with them on the journey they can um, they, they have the capacity to be creative and come up with new solutions. They have the capacity to stick with it when things go bad. Like, like resilience is actually a combination of, of qualities that are so important and they're, and they're deeply biblical, you know, humility and, uh, uh, being able to listen to people, attune with them, empathize with them, being able to be innovative and creative, all these things that you see in the scriptures. And they're, they're right there. And so what I talked about there is that resilience is what we're trying to develop. We're trying to, and it starts with this notion that we understand our purpose for being here is something more than just our success in bringing change, that we need to be grounded in the 
love of God that loves us, cares for us, and is going to keep transforming us. And that that's part of the process. And part of that process is the leadership process we're in. Mm. Grounded in God's love for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so then we're not leading from that place of God's love. Where are we leading from? Well, most of us are leading from our own ego is where we end up leading from. Unfortunately, mm. it's just not just the, the terrible part of it all is that we end up leaving, leading from our desire to be loved, to be liked, to be successful, to oppress people. And that's why we get fragile. Like, so the interesting thing about studying temper tools is a tempered steel is steel that is, uh, it starts actually kind of soft. You put it in the fire, you hammer it. <laughs> and it gets hard, it gets stronger, like the molecules get pushed together. But if you keep hammering on it, it actually becomes too hard and it gets brittle. Mm. I mean, you can break steel by hammering on it. And many times a chisel will eventually, if it gets pounded on enough, it'll break apart. So tempering is halfway between soft and brittle. Mm. And one of the things you have to realize is that capacity to be able to be built more around the desire to be part of what God wants to do in transforming people, as opposed to your just being successful, um, your being admired as a great leader is actually necessary for your own ability to stay in it over the long haul. That's really good. It's halfway between too much and not enough. Yeah, the pressure and the hammer. That's good. It's a process. Yeah. So in the in the book, I talk about this as a process of uh, heating, holding, hammering, and quenching, and I tie it to reflection, like deep, vulnerable self-reflection, like having a having a, which is the heat is not just the heat of leadership, but it's the heat of your own self-reflection. It's like the ability to literally pray, "Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try Mm. me and know my anxious thoughts." Right? Is that some of your is that some of your Ignatian influence there? Uh, well, that's the Psalms, but some of that is. Yeah, I actually do talk a lot about the prayer of examine and right. the, Ignatian, the Ignatian practices that do look back and ask you to be honest before God um, and really be open and vulnerable before God. And that's really the heat. Like mo- most leaders, the, the great irony is to get stronger, to be a tempered tool, actually it starts in your ability to embrace your vulnerability. And most mm-hmm. of us don't want to do that at all. That's, that's like being thrown in the, the worst fire than the fire. My, my dad used to always quote Harry Truman. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Yeah. I always tell leaders, I always tell leaders, the kitchen isn't hot enough. You actually need to go from the kitchen to the actual fire mm. to be melted down so that God can shape you. Mm. And then the heat goes to the anvil, which is our relationships that hold us. And I talk a lot about the importance of that to the hammers, which are our spiritual practices the quenching which is the rhythm of leading and not leading that we need that makes us flexible and healthy people yeah now i'm just in awe now i'm thinking about that (laughs) that's good get yeah don't get out of the kitchen go into the fire Mm -hmm. yeah so okay you talked about heating which is the the strength and self-reflection and, and that, that vulnerability. And then it moves into holding, which is vulnerable leadership requires relational security. What's relational yeah. security there? Well, you know, it's interesting. If you go into a blacksmithing shop, um, the first thing they do is they put you in front of an anvil. And they, and I had, they had me put my name on, with chalk on the anvil. This is going to be my place. 
where I was going to do the work on the steel. It's on this anvil. And the mm -hmm. anvils are heavy and they can handle the pounding and they can take they can take the heat and they can hold the steel that's being shaped. And for a leader, the anvil is our relationships. And what's interesting is the, the we know this from both statistics and just from you know anecdotal evidence that the higher up a person gets into leadership, the more lonely they get. The less people they have to talk to, the less they feel people understand their work. Um, sometimes we even have ego trips. We've had famous leaders say stuff like, you know, I can't find a mentor because there's nobody around who has a church as big as mine, as if that's <laughs> the only thing they could learn from, right? And, yeah. and what they realize is what you actually need is we need partners, we need mentors, and we need friends. We need all three of those. We need a thick, heavy anvil of lots of solid, trustworthy relationships. And yeah, so you break it down into those three partners. What were the other two? Partners, mentors, and friends. Partners, mentors, and friends. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. difference between partners and friends. Well, partners are the people, I would say my partners are people who care more about the mission than they do care about me. Hmm. Like they care more about the mission. How do I know they're my partner? If I stop doing it, they'd keep doing it. If I was called by God to do something else, they would continue on. That's how we know we're partners. We are both in this as partners because we are deeply committed to the mission that God's given us. And that's a really important thing to have. And a lot of times I care deeply about my partners and, I'm, and I love that they care about me. But they're a partner because they care more about the mission than they care about me. My friends are people who care more about me than they care about the mission. I say my friends are the people who might love my work or be involved with my work. But the reason they're in the work is because they want to be with me. I'm their friend. And so I'll say, a lot of times I'll say to my friends, you know, my friends who come up to me and say, hey, congratulations, I heard you got a new book out. And I'll say, yes, you want to read it? And they'll say, no. Like, like, like we're not into all that leadership stuff. We care about you. We're excited mm. for you, Todd. They're my friends. My like partners are people who care more about the mission than me. My friends are people who care more about me than the mission. And in many churches, the great dysfunction is leaders ask their friends to be the people on their board or on their staff, or, or they expect the people on their staff are going to be their friends. And after a while, it gets really dysfunctional because you need both categories. Sometimes we have people who are deep friends who we share mission with, and it's great, but we have to know the difference and keep those clear. And we need both of those. And then the third category, of course, is mentors. And by mentors, I mean anybody who I ask to be in my life that I can be vulnerable with, that I can show up in that vulnerable state that allows God to shape me into the tool. So those are spiritual directors, therapists, coaches, mentors I've asked to be in my life. Those are people who care about me for the sake of the mission God has given me. They, they care about me but they want me to be more than just about me. They want me to be a good husband and a father and a pastor and a leader. And so they care more about me than they're just about me. And that, and you need all three of those in your life. That sounds very holistic. All yeah, areas I hope so. of your yeah. life integrated. Another good Ignatian spiritual direction kind of idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. I love that. Friends, mentors, and partners. That's really helpful. Yeah, um, yeah, and then you also talk about hammering. Stress makes a leader. Yeah, yeah. So what's interesting about blacksmithing is blacksmiths are the only craftspeople who make their own tools and then they use the tool. Hmm. So you, you make a hammer and then you use the hammer. You make a 
instead of the pliers or tongs, then you use the tongs. You make a chisel and you use a chisel. So what I always say is for the for us, that's our spiritual practices. We use spiritual practices. We engage in them. We take them on so that they will shape us to become a tool that God can then use in the transformation of ministry. We become, we're the tool and the hammers are the spiritual practices. And so for most of us, we have spiritual practices that we've had in our lives. We might not, we might come out of, not come out of a tradition that calls them that, you know, like I, I always ask leaders whenever I'm together, tell me the first time that you took on any kind of thing of a spiritual practice. And usually it's stuff like, well, we, my parents taught me to say grace before meals. They didn't think of that as a spiritual practice, or they taught me to say prayers before I went to bed. Or when I was a teenager, I literally uh, became a Christian. I had, to, I had grown up in a church, but I had a personal relation with Jesus. Somebody handed me a Bible and said, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to need to read this Bible. And so I started reading the Bible every day, just a chapter of the Bible every day. And that, you know, those practices shaped me. Say grace before meals, pray every day, say the Bible every day, go to church every week. And they helped me become a Christian. It shaped me. But when mm-hmm. I became a pastor, I needed some other practices. Like I couldn't just read the Bible every day. I had to study the Bible hours every week. I had to pr- learn how to pray for my congregation. I had to learn how to have a deeper prayer life, spiritual prayer practices. I had to go deeper. And then you go through other seasons of life with other challenges and you start asking, what are the practices I need to be able to be faithful to what God's calling me to do? And, and what we do in the book is we say, here are some the kinds of spiritual practices that will help develop the character and the characteristics of people who have the capacity to faithfully lead change. And to be, and here are the characteristics and the practices that help you get to the ability to be resilient in the face of change. What are some of those practices specifically that you point to? Well, the single, the first one is it really starts with this whole notion of learning. I think most of us don't think of learning as a spiritual practice. We think of learning as something we do with our brains that enables us to know something, but so that therefore we can teach something. But really learning is a capacity that really starts with a humility. To be able to be able to say, I don't know, to be able to ask for help to be able to be a person who is uh, a beginner at something like that quality of learning. Um, somebody said, you know, I don't have to be right. I want to keep learning so I can get it right. Like that quality of humility is central. Like lead, I really do believe that lead great leaders are really great learners and they're more committed to learning than they are to being the expert that tells people what to do um, on the map be an expert i've been here before here's what you do off the map you've got to say i don't know i'm not the expert so we're going to learn together as we go and that's a central one and i talk about some others i talk about listening i talk about looking which is getting a perspective getting out of the middle of the swirl of of controversy and getting a larger perspective and being able to see the system at work and i talk about lamenting which is how to basically be a person who can handle the reality of the pain of this world without losing hope um, through biblical lament. So uh, learning, listening, looking, and lamenting are the kind of core practices for developing resilience. And then that results ultimately in us being resilient, the tempering. Yeah, so the tempering is an interesting part. So if you're doing blacksmithing and you put the steel into this fire 
and then you put it on this anvil and then you hammer it away. You're hammering it into shape, right? You're hammering it into the shape of a chisel, but you're also compacting the molecules, the hammering, the practices are making it stronger. It's the stress you're adding to the, adding to the steel. But if you keep hammering it, it'll just keep getting harder and harder and harder until it's brittle. So there's another step and it's the step that's called quenching. And in tempering a tool to temper it, you have to do slow quenching. You can't just drop it into water. You actually have to let it slowly cool down repetitively. So I, I learned this because I, I was speaking about this at a, at a place in, outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And a miner, a guy walked up to me and he said, before I was a pastor, I was a miner in West Virginia. And they wouldn't let us go home at the end of the day till we took our pickaxes back to the forge, heated them up and let them slow down again. And you'd have to heat them and let them slow until a blue line went down the steel. You can see a blue line in the steel. And that's actually the way you know that the steel is tempered. And there's a whole poem by Carl Sandburg from a century ago called Laughing Blue Steel. Because every miner knew that the blue meant that it had the flexibility. Because what it's doing when you heat it up and let it cool down is it's taking stress out of the system. And what I want to do with leaders is say the tempering part, the flexibility that you need is actually comes through a rhythm of having a rhythm of leading and not leading. You need to have some times in your life when you're not in the middle of all the pain of trying to bring change, when you are actually able to rest, when you're able to uh, work on things that bring you joy, that restore you, that there's a rhythm to it, that it's not just pounding away at it. And that many times if you keep pounding away at it is when we become brittle and we break apart. And so that's, that's part of it too. So it's, Heating, holding, hammering, and quenching, reflection, relationships, a rule of life, a set of practices in a rhythm of leading and not leading. So what does leading and not leading look like on the ground then for like the everyday pastor? Because they can't like, um, especially if they stay located in the same place for any significant amount of time, like they can't just completely disengage from the church and the mission. Um, well, you can't you can't completely disengage, but if you have a church that can't handle the boundaries for you to be able to be with your family, to mm -hmm. sleep, take care of your body, to pray, mm -hmm. uh, then you probably are you're probably getting too brittle. Like if your system so depends on you, that system is probably not getting healthier, right? Uh, if you're so like so, one example I would use is every single day because I work with leaders working on leading change every day. I work with people in a really hard situations. And oftentimes I'm coaching them or I'm consulting or I'm working with their organization. And, and the only reason they call my company to do consulting and coaching is because they're in the middle of change. It's hard. At the end of every day, what I do is I want to end my day making somebody really happy because I need to be reminded that I'm not always the guy who's having to be with people in hard things. So what I do every day at the end of my day, and I can do this now, I couldn't do this when I was younger, is I make my wife dinner. And, I, and this is the moment when people just groan. Like if you've got young kids at home, you can't do this, it's harder. But, but I can, and my wife is an artist. She's working in her studio. I can hear music on. She's happily doing her art. I come out, I look at her and say, let me make you dinner. And I make dinner and I love cooking. And I, and I like being a good cook. And even if I'm a mediocre cook, she's happy. And ending my day with someone looking at me, smiling and saying, thank you, helps me get mm. up the next day and work with somebody who is in a hard place and is sure they want to hear me talk about how much resilience they need to keep going.
And it's just a rhythm of my day. It includes walking. It includes, I have a rhythm to my year. I take the entire month of August where I'm in our cabin and I hike and I fish and I walk my dog and I am out in nature because I need to restore myself. I need a rhythm of leaving and not leaving. When I go to church, I will not consult with my home church because I need to be in that church, not as a consultant, but as a place where I'm experiencing and receiving from the Lord, those kind of things. Yeah. We hear a lot about people burning out. At least I've heard that, but -hmm. it sounds like they don't really burn out. What would you say they do? Well, burnout, I I think they break apart. I think they become brittle. Um, Mm. And, and here's, and, and I think about this a lot because I know I'm all in favor of self-care and I am all in favor of, of people giving sabbaticals and making sure that they take care of themselves. But the problem is that most of us are, didn't, didn't sign up for the thing we're doing. Like the reason we're struggling is because we didn't realize that to become a pastor meant we had to lead people through transformation and to lead them through transformation means they would resist us. So like one of the most famous definitions of leadership that comes from Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky is leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. Mm. And almost none of us became pastors because we wanted to disappoint anybody, let Mm. alone our own people. We just wanted to introduce people to the God we love. We want to, I said, we want to introduce the people we love to the God we love. And we want to do that by building a church they would love. We didn't realize that to build a church that people would love would mean having to unbuild a church that people loved in the past that isn't Ooh. working anymore. Ooh. Mm. That's, that's very hard. And it's, and people, and we, the hard, the soul sucking thing for most pastors is having to take people through the resistance. They're mad at you for changing. You're telling them to drop canoes and they just want to paddle harder. And you're trying to explain to them, there's no water. We're going to have to do this differently. Well, I want to end as we kind of come to the last bit of this. I want to end, like you said, with your day, not by cooking you a meal, although that would be cool if I could do that from a distance. Mm -hmm. But I want to end uh, on a hopeful note, uh, on a happy note. So Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, like you you obviously wrote these books and, and, and they are, they're, they're difficult. They're, they're pushing us as pastors and leaders to, to do hard things, but working hard at work worth doing. But um, what are your greatest hopes and dreams for Christian leaders? Because you wrote these in hope that this is not the final word, that that we will learn um, how to lead in those uncharted territories, that we will become resilient. So can you paint a, a big picture of, of your hopes and dreams in this work that you're doing? You know, I can paint a small picture. Let me give you. Let me give you the imagery. This is this is going to sound strange, but this is the imagery that okay. holds me every every single day. Okay. Um, when I when I was in seminary, I had someone tell me that, um, and I've not been able to find this. This might be an apocryphal story, but it's so. It, it, but it, I think it. I think it's true. I had someone tell me that um, when the Nazis were in, uh, invading the Jewish ghettos and taking people away to the concentration camps. They could hear the grandmothers teaching the grandchildren the Hebrew alphabet. Like when they were holding them, they were teaching them the Hebrew alphabet. When they asked them later, like in the middle of this incredibly horrific scene, 
why are you teaching the children the Hebrew alphabet? The answer one of the grandmothers said was, because if I teach them the alphabet, they will find the Torah, the Bible. And if they find the Bible, they will find God again. Mm. I, I often think that all we're doing in teaching people how to lead at this moment is we're teaching them the alphabet so that they can build a church again. And if they build good churches again, people will find God again. I really believe that our work, as humble as it is, is really about that. It's about actually bringing people back to a church they will love, that will actually lead people who right now are missing the presence of God to find God again. And I think the way forward is to do this work. And I think it's really hopeful to think of ourselves as one small bit in a long journey in that way. Mm. That's wonderful. Uh, oh, for more churches where that will be mm -hmm. the case. Yeah, indeed. Um, indeed. That's beautiful. Well, the, the final thing that I want to close with, and thank you again so much, Todd, Dr. Bolsinger, um, mm -hmm. for doing this. Um, would you mind, I, I know it's a little spur of the moment, but would you mind to close with a prayer for the oh, church sure. that she would have leaders that are formed in the crucible of change, pray for thriving churches, that, that more people would be brought into the love of God through this mm -hmm. work? Indeed. Dear God, thank you for just this conversation. Thank you for the desire that we have that your church would raise up leaders who are shaped for this moment. We pray that every person who steps into leadership in any place, in any level, in any congregation, in any small corner of the world would be reminded today that their contribution is to be part of forming a small community that will be the answer to Jesus' prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to that end we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Bolsinger. You're very welcome. Nice to Have a you. wonderful day. Thank you. Good. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Text and Context podcast. If you're interested in some other great content, then you can go over to my website. It's txtandcontxt.com. It's text and context without E's in it. So again, that's txtandcontxt.com. Head on over there and check out a bunch of free resources and plenty of articles about a wide range of topics, as well as book reviews and plenty more. Thank you for listening.